Ah, oh, yes. Uh, so for those of you just tuning in, uh, you missed a, a rousing conversation about Excel and the various training courses for Excel, uh, Microsoft Teams versus the Google G Suite. And uh, we'll be putting that up as a special episode, um, but only for our Patreon subscribers. So you won't be able to hear that, unfortunately, unless you contribute $95 a month to the problem with reading Patreon. Uh, but uh, yeah, wait, 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 where's the $95 going, Brethren? Uh, uh, oh, sorry. I, I thought I deafened your guys' uh, things so you couldn't hear it. Um, let's move on. Uh, uh, Sam, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. I mean, you didn't that's... do your normal intro. No, we haven't gotten to that yet. Steven, oh. how are you? I'm feeling a little weird that you didn't just go right into asking me what I'm drinking. I, I, it feels wrong. I, I, yeah. I, I feel bad about that. And the music will go right there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And, uh, yeah, here here we are in a new week in the year of our Lord, 2020. Uh, Sam. A new month. New month. New, a new year-ish, I guess? New, yeah. So, hmm. Anyway, uh, Sam, what are you drinking right now? I am drinking a lovely cup. 20 ounce cup of Radial Coffee Roasters uh, Dark Roast. I purchased it on my walk home today because I was very tired and needed some caffeine to get me through the evening. Um, they're a nice small batch coffee company in Seattle specializing in coffee and motorcycles. Very nice. I, yes. I'm interested. Uh, it's 6.30 and you're drinking coffee. How is, uh, how is that going to work? Oh wait, right. College you know, so right. I'm, I'm, I'm currently, yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a student. Yeah, we'll just leave it there. <laughs> yep. Uh, Stephen, I, I realized the drink? answer right after I said it. Um, right now mm-hmm. I am drinking the exact opposite. Uh, I poured myself a lovely gin and tonic mm. with lime. Love. Oh, it's, uh, it's interesting. I actually found that um, gin and tonics, while they themselves, like the, the mixture is super simple, you know, just gin and tonic water. Apparently, the amount, the variety of things you can add to it is absolutely astronomical you can add everything from like i think roses i've heard like you can add rose rose petals to it you can add citrusy fruits you can add uh vegetables uh, like a surprisingly large variety of things okay well that that actually translates pretty well uh into what i'm uh, gonna talk about for for this portion um I, i i am having some lovely chamomile tea which i just finished because um uh dear listener you might not believe this but sam uh steven and i actually enjoy talking to each other not just on the podcast so i drank my entire cup of tea whilst we were chatting before hitting the record button but this past weekend i finally bothered to learn what a martini is and it's it's kind of like the evil inverse of the manhattan you know uh, it's in it's a uh, uh, gin and white vermouth instead of bourbon and sweet vermouth um and it's it, it's really just this beautiful pairing of you know opposed opposites. It, it, it's like the Capulets and the Montagues, the Reds and the Whites, the Lancasters and the Yorks, light side and the dark side of the force, skyscraper people versus the Italian mafia down on the ground. Um, I I don't know. But I've I've run out of analogies here. I've I've only had one martini in my life, 
Um, and it was right after I turned 21. My, my dad made me one. And the martinis are shockingly refreshing. Hmm. Especially if, like, if, if shaken like, with ice and everything. Like, the, the, a very cold martini is refreshing. The story here, though, is that I, I didn't realize how much alcohol is in it. Because it's basically oh. straight hard liquor. And yep. so it's just this lovely drink. And I just kind of drank the whole thing. And that was the first time my dad saw me drunk. Oh, no. <laughs> a week after I turned 21. Uh, well, at least it didn't ruin your prospects for working and, you know, your your drinking habit has, uh, hasn't stopped you from getting into the workforce and locking down no. a good paying job. But uh, speaking of getting into the workforce and locking down a good paying job, uh, Sam, oh, what's yeah. your article about? My article is about not me getting into the workforce, but the future of the work ethic in America overall. This is an article, The Future of the Work Ethic, by Nicholas Eberstadt. Uh, Nicholas Eberstadt, I should just say, is a wonderful individual. He is quite eccentric, um, humorous, but ultimately he's very, um, I, I think he's a very poignant writer on the issue of work in America. Uh, he recently published the book, Men Without Work, which basically looks at the crisis of men in America not working. Um, this article, though, is a book review of two different books. So, like I said, he's pretty eccentric, where he reviews two different books at once, critiques both of them, and then throws his own book in at the end as the answer to both books. Um, also, I'd just like to say that to the... Um, what do we have, guys? We have one or two uh, socialist listeners from our McIntyre days who are still hanging on. Whichever, however many we have, we're about to lose them because I am reading this from my personal copy of the Claremont Review of Books. Um, Don't leave, we love you. (laughs) So, sorry, we do love you, but um, that's that's where we're getting this article. Um, Basically, Eberstadt goes through, um, he starts off the article by talking about the massive economic growth that was seen in America uh, from 2000 to 2012. Um, but then he looks at the underside of this growth and it shows that more people are on welfare, that no new drop, jobs are really being contributing or are really being added to the economy. And it all terminates in the election of Donald Trump. He says that this is a shocking phenomenon that political analysis have been spending the last couple of years trying to figure out what's going on, but neither is get, no, nobody's getting at the heart of the issue. Uh, he says that the best groups in this debate recognize the grievances on the side of the Americans who are feeling left behind are not imaginary. And that brings him to the two books that he is reviewing. Uh, these two books are Isabel Sawhill's uh, Forgotten Americans, An Economic Agenda for a Divided Nation, and Orrin Cass's The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. He agrees with both these authors on uh, their points about the current overemphasis of GDP growth in America as an end, the failure of the post-war trickle-down economics um, to lift all boats, and the need to subsidize low-paying jo- jobs. He also points out that these um, authors agree on the importance of immigration control and limiting um, limiting less skilled workers coming into America. So starting off with Sawhill, he, he points out that she's basically looking for um, how to create more dignified work in America. She wants, quote, or she, she calls for, quote, returning to a system in which the work is rewarded over welfare, hand-ups over handouts, and wages over windfall profits. 
It is about improving the lives of those who are neither rich nor poor, but somewhere in the middle. And it is about politics linked to mainstream values such as family, education, and work. End quote. Now, Everstadt agrees with her on this, on this issue, but when he looks at her methods, he strongly disagrees. Her biggest, um, or what she sees as the biggest hurdle to accomplish this goal is increasing individuals' trust in the government. Basically, people must take on some personal responsibility um, and achieve the three big characteristics that she labels for success, family, education, and employment. But in order to do this, they must hand over some of their, um, they must hand over some, some trust to the government in order to use pro- government programs to accomplish these. So she sees um, an expansion of government programs, including a GI Bill for the American worker, um, a way to help people get employment, raising the minimum wage in order to make that work more um, useful to people, as well as um, assuming that, that families will be two income. This leads to, the only way she's able to achieve this is a huge, or a large amount of redistribution, eliminating college savings plans and childcare for the upper middle class. She basically concludes that the white working class um, demands for bringing back jobs and increasing manufacturing employment are illogical and need to be, um, and those people need to be re-educated uh, through more government programs. Now, Everstat will disagree with this later, but between the two books, he pauses to reflect over what he sees as one of the biggest crises in America right now, which is the depth of despair. We're seeing those in the opioid crisis, basically a large amount of people either committing suicide or killing themselves through use of, um, of prescription and illegal drugs. He says that Sahil doesn't actually address this crisis head on, and that leads him to Orrin Cass's book. Uh, Cass is not, is not a conservative um, mirror to, to Sahil whatsoever. He takes a hard look at Republican conservatism and outright claims that Reagan is fully not sufficient to, to handle the crises that are facing America today. Cass calls for a value of social capital, basically saying that workplaces need to be set up so that one can raise a family, and we need to reject what he calls economic piety, which is a phrase I love. Cass says that neither economic growth nor economic redistribution will rescue America from the current situation. However, he does say that work needs to be subsidized and valued far more in American society, which is why he supports a subsidization of work and wage minimum wage increase, which will cost about two hundred billion dollars. Now, his policies aren't necessarily. Everstat points out that Cass's art policies aren't necessarily perfect. He sees his Everstat sees Cass's unions as highly idealistic and looking more like co-ops than anything else. Um, but he does applaud Cass for pointing out the Chinese the Chinese trade shock as being a major impact on the American manufacturing sector. Both these make both these authors make good observations and are going in the right direction of solving the problems for our middle America, but they share three main blind spots. First of all, they assume that, in, that the employment problem is on the demand side, that people aren't educated enough or that enough jobs don't exist for individuals to be able to take those jobs. However, he thinks this is not the case, and he goes back to the analysis that he makes in his own book. Uh, he looks at statistics to show that job openings are actually increasing overall, but we have a large population of non-working men between the ages of 25 and 54, 
who are just sitting at home, not engaging in the labor force and are not even registering on unemployment numbers because they're not looking for work. Uh, he points out that both these authors restrict uh, or favor restricting immigration, but restrictions of immigration would only help if people were actually looking for jobs. In this case, though, the jobs that immigrants are taking are only being sought after by those immigrants. American workers just aren't getting out to look for them. Uh, he also points out the significant problem of ex-convicts in America, where there's a population of uh, roughly 20 million people attempting to get jobs, but with felony with felonies on their record, and so are, and so making them unable to actually make their way up in the workforce. And finally, he says that educational attainment is failing, and neither of these authors address that. They're addressing giving funding for education or expanding re-education programs for um, workers in the manufacturing sector. But ultimately, we need to be pushing people up to get higher degrees because right now America is stagnating in that area. And those are the degrees that are necessary to grow the sections of our economy that are growing. Ultimately, he says that we need to design, we need to address and better our formula. Um, ending with the quote that prosperity is for all is sorely needed in America, but that, that is only the beginning of the journey. So this article overall, I like it because he's trying to take an, he's taking two nuanced authors who don't really fit into either side of the political spectrum and further nuancing them. Um, I appreciate him because he's able to give both of them their due and and agree with them on, on multiple policies, but also um, I guess argue against them using statistics and argue, from his own position versus trying to, to um, kind of spew more partisan rhetoric. So I think this is a helpful article. Um, I think it's useful. I do really want to read both books. Um, but I think that Everstat doesn't necessarily give a full policy proposal um, at the end of it. So that's the article. It's good. I definitely agree with you that any sort of uh, political discussion that isn't just, uh, you know, uh, policy talking or um, uh, partisan talking points is a certainly welcome relief. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I uh, unfortunately, I didn't get the chance to read thoroughly through, but uh, kind of glanced through. And they, it seems that both authors are approaching this in a very nuanced way that is quite refreshing. Um, I liked the uh, the discussion on the convicts and kind of the the frustration that there must be in that one has served one's debt to society and still can't get out of the hole. Um, which, mm -hmm. of course, leads to more crime because if you can't get a job that will sustain you, well do what you know and the the cycle of crime and the cycle of poverty continues um so i did appreciate that being brought up um i i still find myself somewhat skeptical of large government intervention programs it seems that a lot of money is spent and the government isn't necessarily the most effective in the world but that said it seems that america is also very chill with dropping insane amounts of money on its uh, war machine and uh this strikes me as a much better use of that money not to get too political mm. but yeah i would follow that up um with the nuance that Oren cast himself actually in a different article that i happen to read uh in in first things called the problem with the culture problem um in which he talks about some of the issues with the way that liberals and conservatives talk about poverty in the u.s whereas liberals generally say that it's a means problem and if you give people more money then they won't be poor but ignore all of the the, the downstream side effects and uh negative consequences and the bad incentives that that creates. Whereas conservatives say, oh, it's a culture problem. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, you know, 
there are subcultures that work. So if you copy their habits, then you'll be able to figure it out um, because other because we have examples of, of people who have. To that point, Oren is is definitely on a crusade to um, shift opinion on, on the right, sort of like we were talking about before the podcast, away from the libertarian, purely non-interventionist approach to these things. And one of the points that he makes is sort of what you just said, Stephen, is that there are several realms that are already being shaped by government policy that are affecting outcomes. For example, the way that endowments are are taxed. That's my own example. But his example would be the amount of money that goes into scholarships for higher education. The, and, you know, at, at, everyone always says, oh, we need more trade schools or tracking through high school to, you know, segment out students into where they're most likely to succeed or give them the opportunity to choose that, whatever, you know, that a, a, a four-year, you know, $100,000 plus degree shouldn't be the average for everyone. It's not what we need. It's not what the economy needs. So anyway, he would propose redirecting some of that away from the incentives that the government has set up that are obviously not working. So I guess for Sam, how does Eberstadt distinguish himself from Cass's point? Yeah, well, he does distinguish himself there because Cass is very, um, <clears throat> Cass is strongly promoting manufacturing employment in America. And he's more in that kind of um, trade school, you know, mul multiple options of education um, route. Versus Eberstadt is saying, well, no, we know the way to get people out of poverty and the direction that America is developing economically is away from manufacturing employment. And so he is very skeptical that trying to promote manufacturing employment is going to be successful. I think Eberstadt thinks that that's just going to keep these, these communities stagnant. And if they're not, if, if that doesn't get them caught in the current trade shocks, they're going to get caught next time the United States gets into a trade war with China or whatever other country. I, and I think I would, I would further that by saying encouraging manufacturing jobs. That sounds potentially like a solution, even with that said. However, I would also be skeptical of uh, automation. I mean, automation is coming and it's only getting worse. Mm -hmm. um, and manufacturing jobs are going to be some of the first to go. Those are very automatable. Automatable? However you pronounce that. Uh, and therefore, I would say, I would argue that those those uh, communities that are relying on manufacturing jobs, incentivizing them to rely on them more is the exact opposite. You should be freeing them from what honestly is probably a sinking ship. Such as with one thousand dollars a month, Stephen. Welcome to the Yang Gang. Can I get a round of? <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Iowa caucus is happening right now. No updates as as of last I checked, but. That's that not, was going to be that, that actually uh, a preview. That's going to be my rant is I'm just kind of watching the live analysis and we'll see mm -hmm. what's going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not sure why you do that to yourself, but uh, you know, you, you, you don't have to suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. There's a democratic debate Friday. Did you know that? That's insane. Uh, I had no idea. That's insane. This week is insane. Why are we doing this to ourselves? How are they and still debating who the primary candidate is going to be? Well, because, because no after, one knows who it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair. So, 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 so I was going to happen on Monday, which is tonight. Today, Wednesday is the final impeachment vote, and then Friday is a Democratic debate. Your goodness. So, wow. get get ready to hate yourself. Um, oh, sorry, Stephen or uh, Sam. We're 
definitely mm. not on topic, but I just had a question for you yeah. about this because I know you're doing some some research on a parallel topic. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that your particular research has revealed you think that that might be an angle that Eberstadt doesn't mm. really go into? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I liked about Cass, um, the Eberstadt, I mean, I think that Eberstadt would agree here. It's just not where he researches is is the value of social capital. And so like Cass talks about how we need to be focused on kind of a family first um, employment strategy that is viable to get people out of poverty, but allows for one parent to stay home and, and still be sustainable. Everstat just, he doesn't necessarily engage in the social problems of it too much. You can, you can cut this out, but I only know his opinion on this because I talked to him about it. And I kind of mentioned that I was researching the, I know weird flex, but I, I mentioned that I was researching the kind of the what makes community what what makes a community strong and the necessary factors for that, and kind of trying to get the policy from that angle. And I was wondering if he had any thoughts. And he basically said that he does the stats, and that's kind of his role. And so, if I want to do philosophy, that's fine. That's just not his area. Spoken um, like a soulless bureaucrat who's only interested in manipulating the numbers. I just respect it when somebody is willing to say, hey, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm not going to opine on philosophy. It seems that that's a a rare gift to be able to realize that uh, you're not really qualified to speak on one area, unlike myself, who speaks on philosophy stuff all the time. I I, I, I thought that Twitter proved that anyone can be an expert in anything. Oh, touche. Yep, many, many experts, many. Uh, I did. I definitely did uh, resonate with uh, Cass's um, kind of insistence that family-friendly jobs or uh, an economy that is based around it, it being okay to have a family and it being possible to have both a family and a career. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a very yes. healthy outlook. I mean, I generally lean a bit more fiscally conservative, but I can't help but admire European policies of parental leave and whatnot that encourage uh, families to be able to well, to be able to be a family instead of having to have the child and then immediately go to work. I have friends who um, I think they had, I think the dad had like a week or two of paternity leave. And that was kind of, that was it. And he was grateful even for that, which it seemed that, man, like it would be nice for businesses to have some sort of incentive or some sort of ability to, uh, to give this really important leave. Um, and it's kind of a pity mm-hmm. that that's just not kind of standard practice, which I get nothing is free, but at the same time, mm-hmm. like of all the things to subsidize or what have you, that strikes me as a reasonable one. Yeah. And that's kind of my, my impression of this article was that like Cass's big ideas are really good. And I, I, I appreciate those and kind of his emphasis on the family first and the, the strength of the community itself before the economic development. Um, I like that a lot from a philosophical perspective, from a political perspective. But I think that Everstat is good here because he critiques him on the nuances without attacking his main idea. Where like he actually, he goes after him because he says that Cass is falling into the, um, the what, what does he call it? He's falling into the fetish of manufacturing jobs. And, and that's definitely disastrous. Yeah, or how he's, um, he just doesn't, he, he assumes that, automation isn't going to touch manufacturing or isn't a big deal 
And Everstat says, yes, you're correct. Manufacturing isn't a big deal, but it's or automation isn't a big deal. But the reason for that is because people are moving on to service jobs, not because the manufacturing sector is going to continue to grow or should continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, speaking of fetishes and disasters, uh, Stephen, I believe you have an interesting article for us. What an introduction. What a, uh, a transition. Indeed, sort of, I do. My article is Children of Scientology, Life After Growing Up in an Alleged Cult by Ash Sanders of the Rolling Stone. Uh, so Scientology is, as we all know, and to put it rather mildly, a controversial belief system. Uh, it is uh, founded by an individual who once famously said, you don't get rich writing science fiction. If you want to get rich, you start a religion. Uh, and indeed, Scientology is a religion that can come quite costly to its adherents, but that's besides the point. Uh, this Rolling Stone article uh, follows the echoes Scientology had on former members who were raised within its walls. So note, these weren't members that joined and then left. These were members who kind of from day zero uh, were part of it. And so uh, its, its focus is primarily on examining the psychological impacts Uh, being raised in such an institution has had on these individuals, Uh, but it also goes into some very interesting vignettes uh, given by these individuals. One thing that really surprised me uh, throughout the article was the extreme stoicism advocated by Scientology. Now, I really like the idea of stoicism. In fact, one of the things that drew me to orthodoxy in the first place was the more stoic demeanor of a lot of it. A bit of an aside, but I was continually frustrated with not really feeling a ton in the evangelical services, which are designed to induce feelings, with it being understood that to feel is is to connect with God. Not that there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but it's something I grew increasingly skeptical and wary of. In any case, back to the point, the thought behind stoicism, to be perfectly in control of your emotions, to understand that you can't control the universe, but that you control your reaction to what the universe does, I think is an excellent standard to live by. However, it seems that Scientology took this excellent philosophy and translated it into not having any any emotions at all. When a child is raised as, quote, an adult in a small body, end quote, and encouraged to repress any sort of negative emotions, such as fear, grief, or loneliness, this has severe consequences. The individuals who were all raised to gauge their emotions on a scale of negative 40 to 40 thetas, or life force energy, grew grew up associating strong emotion with spiritual damage. Uh, they'll go through drills such as two people sitting down facing each other for hours on end without moving or reacting or having a member sit calmly while another yells at them in order to attempt to uh, induce a reaction. Uh, Silverman, one of the individuals, uh, one of the members of this group of former Scientologists, maintains that, quote, the purpose of these exercises isn't to create calm auditors or clear communicators. Uh, The goal of some of these training routines is to exteriorize, to have the soul leave the body and watch it from the outside. And what is that, she asks? That's disassociation. That's building a muscle to disassociate at will, end quote. And uh, uh, Silverman was actually ended up being diagnosed with uh, disassociative identity disorder, though she admits she probably would have had it regardless. But having some sort of doctoral intervention early on would have helped. Um, These things are very chilling, uh, not only because of the clear damage that is being done to individuals, but because how eerily similar I can see that being to the meditations of, say, Buddhist monks or the centering prayer of Christian monks. And this, I think, was one takeaway that I was surprised to see I acquired from this excellent article, that though Scientology is obviously an extreme, the damages religion can do are extreme and severe. Uh, I myself am religious, and I take religion seriously. But I think too often religious folks are quick to defend a practice that may bring about harm. And this article, in bringing up extremes, does a really good job at highlighting this. 
uh, I find myself wondering how I would react if I heard of a Christian church doing such practices, such as having members stare at each other for hours on end. And honestly, I'm not entirely sure I would just immediately condemn it without without trying to give it a little bit of thought. I hear Scientology and immediately I'm biased against it. But what if it was my own religion? Uh, in any case, this article is well written, does a really good job showing the rather serious impact Scientology had on those who were raised within its walls. Um, would highly recommend it. It has some rather heartbreaking stories. Um, one of which, uh, mo or most of the more heartbreaking stories involve people leaving and attempting to connect with family members who are still in the church and pretty much being told, you can talk to us when you come back to the church. Um, kind of that, and, and that's all. Um, people refusing to get to know their grandkids because their grandkids are, you know, children of apostates and, and such. But it's also a very hopeful article. It is about people who went through some pretty horrific experiences coming together to work through it and to heal, which ironically enough, is one of the primary purposes of religion, something that Scientology would do well to note. That's that's about the tale I have to tell to you. Yeah, well, uh, Stephen, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. A lot of that was said like it was said by someone with extremely high thetan levels. Um, have mm. you gotten your, your self-audited recently, I, brother? I haven't. Brother, no, oh, I, I apologize. <laughs> I apologize, <laughs> brother Baron. <laughs> Brother Baron, Brother Brevin, uh, I will uh, immediately go to the nearest Scientology uh, processing center. <laughs> no, uh, I actually but, had a but, professor uh, uh, who uh, went. It, he he took a fake. He had a fake name and uh, went to a Scientology center and got, like did their their standardized test. He was just curious and wanted to see what it was actually about. He was like, "Yeah, it's just one's kind of pseudoscientific, you know, quasi psychological stuff, and pretty much the equivalent of a personality test." Oh. Uh, I, the best prank I've ever heard was a friend of mine and Brevin's who, to get back at somebody, she took um, this person's email, put it, uh, gave it to the Church of Scientology and just checked every single box for wanting information oh. on everything. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, email and phone number. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> As I recall. evil. The person failed to do their part of a group assignment, um, so they definitely yeah. deserved it. <laughs> oh, uh, that's terrible! So, so I, I was actually <laughs> going to bring up that exact same story, um, but yeah. so, so I'll go to my backup, which is if you ever want to know more about Scientology, there's an excellent documentary uh, made by uh, Trey Parker and, and Matt Stone, um, which is an episode of South Park that uh, is is hilarious. Um, and there's lots of Tom uh, jokes about uh, Tom Cruise. So um, definitely worth the watch. Uh, after reading uh, this article, I did a, you know, went down the, the rabbit trail of uh, Wikipedia articles around Scientology. And man, there's some there's some just crazy stuff that is not necessarily what I would uh, think of when I think of Scientology, such as, you know, domestic espionage. I just generally think crazy, like alien religion with Xenu and all sorts of nonsense like that. Well, like Scientology is just so perfectly wrongly named, just like Christian science also. Mm -hmm. Neither Christian nor science. No. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's that. There's something very poetic about both of those. It really is. About both of those names. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Scientology is weird because it's like, it's supposed to be this, you know, whim weird whimsical story for rich um, you know, people to to try to feel spiritual, basically. But 
isn't that in the real world. Like, I mean, the, the fact that people can get so caught up in it. And I think that maybe she mentioned it in the article is that when people get involved, like it's more of a, you know, it's just kind of a fun thing that they're doing, but then you get really involved and start mm-hmm. cutting off from people. And then your kids have mental disorders. And, and it's like, I don't know. I, I wonder if, um, I don't know. It's, it, it, it's horrific. I wonder if it was intended to be that way. I mean, ostensibly, it appears, the the one quote from Hubbard kind of says it all, like, it seems that he was in it to just make money and Mm -hmm. came up with a rather crazy story and just knew how to create a belief system that was uh, believable enough to prey on people, I guess. It's, it's, It's kind of disturbing how they really do. I mean, they are vicious with their uh their backlash some of the um stories in the article i mean people being uh, uh, the the article is pretty uh, careful to pepper in allegedly and this person said that it happened but the church denied it but i mean there was allegations of like yeah i had to do six months of hard labor before they let me go they they blackmail people because they have pretty much the equivalent of confession except they have no such thing as the seal of confession and so all your dirty laundry, they have it and they record it and it, they'll they'll straight up threaten you to to put it as uh, put it out to the public. If you leave it, it's honestly it's a surprisingly vicious system. Oh, well, it makes you look back at your own belief system and ask, you know, is mm-hmm. am I falling into this? And I guess like the, the thing about Scientology that seems uniquely. Maybe maybe this is also being from the Christian perspective, but it seems uniquely awful indeed i i I will say hands down like i i like i appreciated it as a thought exercise on kind of there because there are some rather silly things that uh, that happen in christianity every so often and it it kind of both frustrates me but you know whatever um but thankfully i can honestly say that there's nothing part of the church as understood by through proper dogma there is nothing even close to the insanity of Scientology. Whereas with Scientology, it just seems that that's just business as usual for them. If there's abuse Mm -hmm. within the church, it is rightly so regarded as erroneous. It's regarded as, um, as, as inherently defective um, to its belief, the belief system it proclaims. Whereas with Scientology, it is not a defect. Arguably it's a, it's a feature, not a bug. Um, Mm -hmm. So th- thankfully, I can pretty firmly say that my my takeaway was mostly hypothetical, but I do I do think it is an important thing to every so often kind of force yourself to take a step uh, a step back and kind of look why you're in the belief system you are. I mean, pretty much, yeah. Like there's with a, with quite a few religions, I will develop a lot of nuance, and I will say, you know, I may disagree with them on X, Y, or Z, but uh, with Scientology, it's just kind of nah it's bad it's uh it's a vicious system that just needs to go away yeah and uh speaking of vicious systems that need to go away um did you all know that it's official international uh brutalism month um and which i'll be talking about in my rant but first my article this week is an obituary of a man who spent much of his life dedicated to fighting the monstrosity that is brutalist architecture and I just want to read this, um, these opening few lines from his obituary, one of many, um, and, and many were 
much better than this, but this was a nice succinct one um, in The Economist. On frosty winter mornings or at any season, there was no greater pleasure for Roger Scruton than to ease into woolen breeches and a frock coat, pull on his boots, mount his old horse, and in the wake of the milling hounds, set off for the hunt. His life, he had concluded, fell like Caesar's gall into three parts. In the first, he was a wretched youth, fighting an often drunk, ardently socialist father who, after he won a scholarship to Cambridge, would not speak to him. In the second, restless part, he traveled, wrote, and built up an academic life in philosophy at Burbeck College and elsewhere. And in the third, from the, 19, from the early 1990s, he went hunting. It combined in one activity his three abiding passions, conservatism, controversy, and Englishness, end quote. And of course, linking that to the beagling experiences of our own uh, Samuel. I did think of that when I read that sentence. Yeah, that's... that's... There, there is nothing more um, idyllic than, than beagling. Just going to throw that out there. Yep, that's, that is why I, I went with this a bit over the many other ones. Um, so Roger Scruton is uh, someone who has a special place in my intellectual heart, as it were. Um, the article more or less goes down and, and outlines his his life, uh, his controversies, his stances. He's best known as a um, conservative English philosopher, focused a lot on aesthetics, but also a, a wide range of topics. And his robust defense of the English way of life and his combative stance, let's say, towards certain thinkers of what he would call the new left. And his book, Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands, which I read in my sophomore year, was sort of the first opening that I had to these large scales debate about ideas that were very multidisciplinary and that they were pulling in psychology and philosophy and literature and political science and uh, theology, even all, all into one miasma where, you know, it's just these huge big headed thinkers just going at each other, hammer and tongs. And Roger Scruton both made me aware of this world and also, you know, gave me my first shape into how to argue about the world and also all the people who I'm supposed to hate, um, which of course I, I still do. The second book of his that I read was called The Soul of the World, and it's his meditation on a, a variety of topics, you know, as most collections of essays are. But it's his sort of his theory of everything in terms of beauty and the transcendent, and against those who would make the world aggressively imminent through various ways, um, whether that be in in architecture or that be in scientists who you know try and reduce humans to nothing uh, more than neurons firing whereas he sees a, an emergent quality to it defies analysis in a certain way uh, his documentary too for the bbc why beauty matters is basically like an intro to philosophy course on beauty good architecture craft and how so many modern artists and and, and modern art just gets it very, very wrong in, in his opinion, obviously. Um, and, and that the just revealing the ugliness and, and, and inhumanity that pervades so much architecture and giving words to feelings that I and I know for a fact many of my friends express, sometimes the place where people first sort of realize their dissatisfaction with modern society, modern culture, and what we've built around us is through architecture. And, you know, one classic example possibly being, you know, Jeff Bezos's uh, giant glass balls to smack down right in the middle of uh, Seattle. He was always controversial, as most interesting people are. For example, his that documentary that I mentioned, you can't actually find it uh, on the BBC website. They took it down. But you can find a, bootle a bootleg copy on YouTube with Portuguese subtitles 
and as he sort of tells humorously in an interview, like 10 years after that was made, uh, that when he got the green light to make that, the BBC also had to make two counter documentaries from people who disagreed strongly with Scruton just to balance out his opinion that like brutalist and modern architecture is bad. His philosophy of conservatism was also uniquely English and very distinct from the sort of more aggressive and fiscally conservative American uh, conservative philosophy. Uh, quote, as he wrote in The Meaning of Conservatism, the core conservative value was not competition, but attachment, the defense of civil society in a certain way of life. The state should stay small, not just because bureaucratization was bad, but because when government intervened, people ceased to help each other and social capital dwindled. He saw this exemplified in Eastern Europe, where in the 1980s, he secretly supported the Czechs against a withering communist regime, which controlling everything left them only with emptiness, end quote. And, there, and, and there's some cool stories about him teaching like underground philosophy seminars behind the Iron Curtain um, to, to philosophy students who are just like dying for ideas and, and trying to maintain their culture. So uh, all that said, uh, Roger Scruton will be greatly missed. Um, there are many books of his that I need to buy and read, and I am looking forward. Definitely second the uh, the documentary that he did. That was an excellent documentary, a very great distillation of uh, a philosophy of aesthetics, I suppose. Um, he really did a, a good job kind of narrowing down why it is that modern art doesn't work as art proper. Um, and I, it, I didn't feel like he strawmanned it a ton. I think he strawmanned it a little probably, but he he kind of fully acknowledged like yes it's trying to communicate reality but that's not the point of art if anything like art isn't trying to show you how ugly life is it's trying to draw you and, and therefore kind of draw you down it's trying to communicate this transcendent transcendent beauty and trying to draw you up um whether through religious theming or um in kind of like a lot of post-enlightenment art even just the the sublime beauty of nature or what have you, it's supposed to draw you out of yourself. It's supposed to, it, it's supposed to lift you up, not, not kind of remind you how ugly and base reality is and kind of therefore drag you down. So I thought and, he did a, a great job on that. And also orient people towards eternal things, things that mm -hmm. matter and, and continue to matter so that there, so that people aren't caught up in eternal novelty, which seems to be our fate nowadays. Yeah. And that, that's the disturbing thing is that a lot of modern art, it just seems to be people that want to be unique. Uh, they want their ideas to be unique and therefore kind of getting more and more kind of insane and um, just kind of off like the wall a, ideas and like a, like a banana being taped to the wall. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I mean, this is all making me realize how much I need to read Scruton because I've known tangentially about his ideas for a couple of years and they keep coming up in different conversations and I need to get around to actually reading him. It my head canon is that he's Jordan Peterson, but better. He's he sounds so much better than Jordan Peterson. I, I, I feel like that would be No, he's so much better. <laughs> well at least from what I've heard. I can tell that you guys are getting a little worked up, so let's go ahead and redirect that energy to something more <laughs> productive and that would be to our rants. Uh, I will go first to continue on um, from where I, I left off talking about Roger Scruton. Uh, and my rant is about uh, International Brutalism Month, which one of my acquaintances posted on Facebook, and he's kind of like a socialist type guy. So, of course, he likes brutalism because he, you know, 
he has to. If you can't celebrate the buildings that imprisoned, you know, poor ex-serfs after the gulags were filled and all the kulaks were killed, uh, you know, what are you going to do with with your appreciation of architecture? All point. You, 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 you really don't have many options. Um, so, uh, so suffice it to say that brutalism is terrible, soul-crushing. No human should ever have to live inside those horrid gray boxes. I read a hilarious article talking about the FBI building. Uh, the famous brutalist architecture of that is like crumbling and like in danger of hitting pedestrians as they walk along the road. Cause it turns out it's like Dang. not actually that good um, as in terms of uh, shelf life. I, I did have an interesting conversation with one person in my reading group in one of my reading groups uh, who said, who was arguing in favor of brutalism and I disagreed strongly, but his argument in, in terms of a video game that he played was that Brutalism is a blank canvas upon which you can sort of paint your life, and the, and the people become more highlighted in contrast to the uh, you know the the stark outlines and edges and, and and lack of color in the brutalist world. My point uh, and my counterpoint was that yes, that's fine as a contrast as like an imagined possibility, but actually forcing people to live in those environments is something else completely because humans aren't enough without an environment without a home there's not enough of our personality we don't have enough energy to always be a brilliant splotch of paint on like a dead sad gray backdrop that's why we build comfortable spaces for ourselves that's why we build beautiful things for ourselves so that we can, so that it's not always about us shining brightly like a star we're when we build a home and when we build a home or a house or a building well we pull up the meaning of history into the present and surround ourselves with it so that we can be reminded that it's not just alone or that it's not just us alone standing here with nothing around us except for gray concrete and finally with 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 less eloquence than i would like but brutalist architecture really is just like the cookie the cookie cutter airbnb interiors that you see everywhere that you go but for exteriors, which is the highest criticism. I have very little to add to that other than it, uh, my the building at which I work used to be the uh, Wikipedia picture for brutalist architecture. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that explains so much. <laughs> it's true. I mean, yeah, I want to do a, maybe this is a future episode, but on uh, Christopher Alexander and his theories on architecture. I think I brought him up before on, on this show. Where yeah, he's, uh, Isn't he your no, dad's favorite guy? He's one of my dad's favorite. So my father's an architect. Um, and, and Christopher Alexander came up in an urban politics class I was taking because he's a Catholic philosopher who also wrote this seminal book on architecture and how to create spaces that people live in. And so, yeah, we, we should talk about him because we, we always we touch on architecture, um, but we never really dive into it. Um, and again, as a teaser, I mean, he, he goes into such detail as the the width of a public square should be no more than like 40 feet or something because any longer than that and you can't recognize someone's face immediately and once you aren't able to do that your ability for relationship goes down hmm. things like that i um, really like all, that it's or or, or the, a house when you walk through a house you should be able you you should have to walk through all the rooms on your way to the kitchen um, you shouldn't be able to circumvent the living room on the way to the kitchen because then you just cut the 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 means or the the community out of your quest to feed. 
Yeah, we need to we need to talk about this guy. Also, I just Wikipedia'd him, and apparently, uh, his notes on the synthesis of form was said to be required reading for researchers in computer science throughout the 1960s. Wow. Well, so well, probably right. because if you apply those forms to computer models, it would mm-hmm. create more efficiency there. Yeah. I mean, it, honestly, it's, okay. it's looking at that similar to it. But yeah, no, he sounds he sounds awesome. Yes, we should do a session on that. Yeah. Anyway, Stephen, who's Go. Okay, I have a, I have a rant for you. Uh, so I'm currently selling my house, uh, and it is due to the uh, cough gas nightmare that is my HOA. But that's a rant for another time. Uh, so one thing I was reminded of was is the axiom that if you are able to use a product for free, that is not the product. You are in fact the you are in fact the product. I uh, I found this out with Zillow. So you can put your house for sale on Zillow. And they do not charge you a dime. How very nice of them. But then the moment I did, I was flooded by calls, not which sounds great, but unfortunately, most of them were calls from realtors wanting to represent me, not from potential customers. Uh, so I, I have, for the past couple of weeks, been filtering out calls of customers and uh, you know realtors that want their slice of the pie. So most, most of these realtors are fairly polite. They take a while to get the hint that I'm not interested, but they're salespeople. So I get it that this is how they make their money. That's fine. That's whatever. This one particular individual, he, he calls me and uh, I'm at, I'm at, I'm working from home. So I, I have some time. I, I take it. I take the call and uh, he, he starts talking to me about my house and uh, I kind of, I entertain a few questions and I ask like, Oh, are you uh, are you a realtor? Or are you, are, are you looking to purchase the house? And he says, Oh no, I'm, I'm interested in the house. And uh I say okay, great, and um, he then he then spends the next five minutes berating me about the price, um, and lecturing me on how the prices that have of uh, the houses that have sold in uh, in my area have been uh, significantly less, even though they sold like a year ago or so, and it's possible that it's gone up, and just like starts just kind of knocking on my uh, on the price of my house and saying that there's no way I'm going to be able to sell it for this, and. I just assume he's trying to play hardball, uh, hardball, you know, just trying to get that negotiating already there. And so I, I just try to be patient. I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. And eventually I invite him to come take a look at the house. And uh, I tell him if, if he wants to negotiate, if he wants to talk price, I'd be happy to have that conversation with him. But he should probably take a look at the house first before trying to, you know, knock me down. Eventually, he reveals that he is, in fact, not a buyer. He represents a realtor and asks me when he can schedule me to, quote, meet with one of their top realtors, end quote. I still trying to be polite. After all, it never hurts to have friends in realty who have potential clients who want to buy. I just tell him I'm not interested, that I've already spoken with quite a few realtors, and that I just, at this point, I'm looking to save the the 6% commission that all of them charge. He then paradoxically claims that if I go with a realtor, I'll end up selling for even more. Um, let's that, that, That's somewhat suspicious given that not five minutes ago, he was lecturing me on how there's no way I can sell for the price I'm asking. No actual way. Like even if I found a seller, he made the claim that it would follow through due to appraisal reasons, which is not true, by the way. Um, I thank him for that interesting point. And then I tell him I'm not interested. He spends another five minutes lecturing me on how I'll save money if I do that. Eventually, I just put my foot down and say, look, I'm not interested. Thank you for your time. And then he, 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 he concludes very logically, well, 
if I want to save money and I, he, he tells me that I will save money and I've al- if I've already spoken with realtors, he can only conclude that it's due to illegal activity that I'm trying to hide and I'm trying to hide them from realtors asking the wrong questions and that I need to tell him what's going on right away. To which I tell him, Stephen, of course not. You? I, I, I know, right? I don't know how he found out about the crack cocaine, but I mean, he, he was on to me. Uh, so I, I tell him, of course not. I attempt to instruct him on the, shall we say, tactically disadvantageous nature of his strategy. All the while, my voice is getting admittedly a lot louder because the dude keeps interrupting me and then yelling at me for interrupting him. He then hangs up on me. And immediately, I get suspiciously spammed by an unknown caller that hangs up immediately after I answer. Presumably robocalls of some kind. I'm not exactly exactly sure. But the best part of it all is he calls me a week later and pretends that that conversation never happened. Yes, he, that's amazing. This guy was a piece of work. It was insane. And the worst part is, so like, good. with me, I, like, I know that he's just trying to bully me. And, like, I, I was a little shaken afterwards, but I just kind of shrugged off. And, you know, whatever. It's some jerk that's trying to bully me. But that strategy... At first, I, I, I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, what a stupid strategy. What, you're going to insult me and then you're going to think I'm going to work with you? Like, I'm getting flooded with calls from realtors wanting to work with me. I want to work with the ones that treat me well and with respect. Um, but that strategy essentially could work with somebody who just gets overwhelmed very easily and, like, kind of gets bullied into thinking that, oh, my, am I, maybe I am doing something illegal. Maybe I do need to talk with a realtor or something like that. And just it's just such a jerk way of going about that business and it's already a stressful uh, enough venture itself just what a what an awful person so uh on the off chance that you are listening to this uh, screw you like that's just that's just awful (laughs) (laughs) wow you have way more patience than i would have i i i would have been doing like funny voices or just like whatever it took to like entertain myself until he hung up but you like actually try to be nice. You're like a decent I, person. Well, well, I try. Uh, kudos you know, to I, you, sir. I think I shouldn't have been, but uh, oh, thank you. I appreciate it for whatever for, for what it's worth. So, uh, well, yes, realtors, wow. they're evil. Some of them are, at least. That's epic. Well, well, you know what the actual strategy is? Is he does that, and then a nice realtor calls you like a day oh, later, it's... and it's like, hey, so. I know it can be a little rough, but I just love to offer my services. If you ever have any questions about the market, I'd love to help. Maybe we can get coffee. You, you, you already look like you're doing it's a really good, good cop, job and understand what you're doing. I, I mean, who would say that you don't? I just want to support you in that, right? <laughs> oh my God, got, that's actually... Gotten, no, I've gotten that line too. Sam, Sam, do you want to go into realty with me? <laughs> Which There's, cop oh, do you no, want to be? The, 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 oh, have you, have you well, I'll definitely be a good cop, good cop bad cop this. realtors. Yep. So in Always Sunny, uh, it, it's yeah. Always Sunny in Philadelphia. There's an episode in which they do that exactly exact thing. They call it um, uh, Honey and Vinegar Real Realty, and pretty much like one of them hits on the uh, on the people who are the potential buyers, and the other one like pretends to uh, to be like a hitman or something like that. It's hilarious. <laughs> you know, this reminds me of my favorite email spam chain I ever got, where I got five emails in a week from the Princess of Nigeria saying that she needed my money. And, you know, I was entertained by that. But then immediately after that, I got an email from the United Nations themselves. United Nations. Wow. Like, wow. UN at something, something, something dot um, Africa dot, I don't know. Um, <laughs> like, it was, like, it was, it was it, yeah, and it was like from the United Nations saying, attention, you have received um, a, a false email 
from somebody claiming to be the monarch of Nigeria. Click here to report your um your Oh my god. That's, and that's like, brilliant. It was no, amazing. That, yeah. <laughs> that's literally inception. It's it's like yeah. tell them that that you're manipulating them in the dream and then get them to its ah, oh, that's so good. Yeah, that's I, well I love done. That. Love that. Yeah. If it weren't for this, if it weren't for the spelling errors in the email from the United Nations, <laughs> I might have fallen for it. But wow. yeah. Anyway, wow, that is that is an excellent story and an excellent place to end this excellent episode. Well, no, uh, we need Sam's rant. Oh, okay. Quick rant. Okay, go go go. I, I do need to go. Uh, just my quick rant. Speaking of a lack of decency, um, I've been sitting here the whole time while you guys were ranting, just just um, refreshing my Wall Street Journal feed of the Iowa caucus. And I am, um, you know, I'm, I'm shocked with, maybe I shouldn't be shocked. Caucusing has always seemed to me like the, the epitome of what it means to live in a democracy where you go out, you get together in your, in your crowds, you negotiate with the other sides, you form um, a compromise and you stand by a candidate. And if you're in, if you're in Des Moines right now, that would be Elizabeth Warren, who's currently in the gymnasium with a mega, with a uh, megaphone. And that, and that seems all fine, but what I'm seeing right now is it it appears absolutely brutal, where people are have completely thrown out any question of which policies are right for the country, which policies are right for even me and my family, or which, which policies are, or which candidate is the one I prefer. And it's all a calculation of either which one can beat Donald Trump or which one is getting the most, is, which one's supporters are shouting the loudest. And I guess if this is what democracy in America looks like, I'm, I'm troubled. So that's all. We're a long There's way no, from Tocqueville. I know. Tocqueville <laughs> would be weeping right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Every, every so often, like most of the time, I just keep politics at arm's length and just kind of chuckle to myself or, uh, you know, like, kind of laugh at how absurd it is but there are some times where i i get increasingly kind of sober-minded over really just kind of how far it's fallen um it is kind of sad because you know this was a great experiment um you know a system like this was pretty novel when it was developed you know back several hundred years ago and this is kind of where it's developed and there is there's something very sad about that well see what you have to do is you have to pick a side and then stick with it build up your your confirmation bias bones and just make memes that make fun of anyone who's not on your team that's 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 the real way to do politics in perfect yeah yep that's the way to to into enjoy this ah, i'll show that a dumb other side sam sam knows exactly what i'm talking about okay no and then so i do know what you're talking about yeah okay all right so uh uh, on that note uh for (laughs) everyone here at the problem with reading podcast uh i'm brevin steven i'm sam and we'll see you after iowa for our live show in des moines Alright, and I also need to head out to the family because I know I haven't seen her all day. So, oh, go oh, see nice. your wife. I'm actually going to go call Alex because I haven't been able to call her in like three days. So, yep, yeah, yep. So, hey, Steven, yeah. are you going to call your girl? Uh... I'm gonna, I'm gonna oh. go rethink my life. <laughs>